the Vietnam War and the push for US involvement was a result of the Gulf of Tonkin incident. A lie. The Iraq War famously is a result of lies. Wars in Somalia are a result of lies. The Second World War and the German invasion of Poland was a result of carefully constructed lies. That is war by media. Let us ask ourselves of the complicit media, which is the majority of the mainstream press, what is the average death count attributed to each journalist? Fly 99.5 FM WBAI.org here in New York City. Also, uh, Assange Countdown to Freedom.com and RandyCritical.com. You'll be able to get this show, uh, and it's our Assange uh, Countdown show, which started right here on WBAI four years ago, folks. Four years ago, and uh, the situation is like very dire right now, and there's a lot of things up in the air. So we're going to continue doing these shows here at WBAI, where it all started until at least after the decision by Judge uh, Baytasar on uh, January 4th, or uh, when Trump gives uh, him a pardon, if he does, and then we can move on and do other people that need pardons. Uh, but uh, this is very significant because the entire uh, journalism community is uh, at risk here. Uh, if uh, Assange is uh, extradited here and put in prison. All right, so I wanna mention on Sunday, January 3rd, the day before uh, Judge Baytasar comes out, there, there will be a press conference and a rally at the um, UK Embassy on 47th Street at 1 p.m., actually 11 a.m., but uh, 1 p.m. in somewhere in the middle of the ocean, all right? So it's 11 a.m. on January 3rd. I'm not doing this again. And uh, so be there. It's going to be great. Call up 212 uh, 726 1385 for more information. All right. So, look, we have two great guests on this show today. Uh, tremendous uh, uh, guest uh, list that we have. The two are unbelievable. We have Rebecca Vincent from Reporters Without Borders will be here uh, halfway through. And uh, right now, we got someone who was in the very first season. And second season, third season, fourth season, earlier this year on uh, Assange Countdown to Freedom. And he is a, a former CIA counterterrorism officer. He's a whistleblower. He spent time in jail. He's written a million books. Uh, he's a hero, uh, a real great guy. And gee, I've already spent five minutes. John Kiriakou, how you doing, buddy? Hey, it's always a pleasure, Randy. Good to see you. Yeah, I, I you know, this is, um, we're at a weird time here, John, as you know, uh, you know, what, do you make of all of this talk about Trump giving Assange a pardon? Well, you know, stranger things have happened. And I think that if Trump wants to, to take one last swing 
at uh, his detractors and his enemies. Pardoning Julian Assange would be a really great idea. Yeah, so uh, so it is possible. I mean, you know, look, we're asking a guy who has executed nine people in the last uh, month and uh, got all his children in cages, which actually started under Obama. Uh, mm -hmm. But uh, we're asking, we're asking him to show some heart. Uh, and Nils Melzer uh, has come out, and so many others have come out asking for him for the same reason that you said it. It would be, first of all, it's the right thing to do. You know, he's talking about cleaning up the house the intelligence agencies, this would be one way to do it. Am I right? Oh, yeah. And you said something in your intro that I think is so important. It bears repeating. Uh, these charges against Julian Assange really are an attack on the entire media, uh, the entire institution of the media. And one of the great disappointments here, Randy, is that the New York Times and the Washington Post and the LA Times and the Wall Street Journal and all the others are ignoring this case. If you want to read about what Julian Assange is going through, if you want to read about the details of the case and about why this is so important, you have to go to the alternative media. And I think that's just a disaster over the long term for the American, uh, the American media. Yes. Well, that's that's a question. Here's uh, something I wanted to ask you. Um, you know, do, do they understand what would happen in this uh, city in Alexandria? Uh, Virginia, you know, you've, you've been there before. Uh, would he get a fair trial there? No, I, I've maintained from the very beginning, it's not possible for Julian to get a fair trial in the Eastern District of Virginia, in Alexandria, Virginia. They call EDVA the espionage court for a good reason, because that's where most espionage cases are tried. And it's because no national security defendant has ever won a case there. Uh, you know, they, they, charge stack, they add felony upon felony upon felony, and they venue shop. And they charge people in the, in the district where they're most likely to be convicted and the most likely to receive a harsh sentence. That's what uh -huh. they've done in this case. Yeah, it seems so. Let, I wanted to you know, say that people like yourself and, uh, and Manning, Chelsea Manning and, um, and Julian Assange and Snowden, uh, whistleblowers, uh, you know, you are not traitors. You, you are, you are like the, the ultimate patriots in this country. Tell, tell me why people think that these are crimes and it's anti-patriotic uh, to do what you have done and what others have done. Yeah, I consider myself to be a patriot. And I know that Ed Snowden and Chelsea Manning uh, consider themselves to be patriots as well. You know, when, when people see the word espionage, when they see that somebody has been charged with espionage, they, they recognize immediately this is, this is one of the gravest crimes with which an American can be charged. And in some cases, it carries with it the death penalty. But what is espionage? Espionage is, is uh, spying for a foreign a country, a foreign power. It's uh, leaking classified information in order to damage the United States. Whistleblowers, national security whistleblowers maintain that it is illegal to classify a crime. Therefore, it's illegal to not blow the whistle when you recognize waste, fraud, abuse, or illegality, uh, or threats to the public health or public safety. You're compelled to blow the whistle. On your first day as a federal employee, Randy, you raise your right hand in the air and you swear to protect and uphold the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. I only lament that when I put my hand in the air and I, I took that oath, that I was the only one in the room who actually meant it. Right. Yes. Well, you know, that's that's definitely the case. Uh, you know, I think you would have betrayed 
the country if you had not stood up. Is that how you feel? That is exactly how I felt. And you know, I, I kept waiting. I, I became aware of the, of the torture program at the CIA in 2002, just as it was beginning. And I kept waiting for somebody to come out and say something. And then I resigned from the CIA. I went into the private sector and I kept waiting for someone to say something. Finally, five and a half years passed and I decided I just couldn't wait any longer. Well, five and a half years went by and then you got like uh, swept up and you knew you didn't have a chance. We're gonna talk about that later in the second half of this interview. I'm, I'm telling the truth, even when it's painful, is the right thing to do. Is that is that your uh, ethos? It's always the right thing to do. And you know, there are two components to that for me. Uh, one is the truth always comes out. Sometimes it takes a little bit of time, but the truth always comes out. And one of the things that I learned in this whole experience, and I learned it from a prominent psychiatrist, he said that whistleblowers have a very clearly defined sense of right and wrong, uh, more clearly defined than the general population. I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that's a good thing because sometimes things are black and white. They are right or wrong. And in my case, torture was wrong. In Ed Snowden's case, uh, warrantless wiretapping was wrong. You're compelled to say something. You have to say something. Well, you know, I, I think that whistleblowers like yourself are basically a safety valve, you know, when it, that make noise when something bad is about to happen or is happening. Do you look at uh, whistleblowers in the same light? Absolutely. I was very happy when, when uh, Congress passed the Federal Whistleblower Protection Act. Uh, the problem with it at the time was that it exempted national security whistleblowers from its protections. And so it was amended a year or two ago, but even then, you have, to, you have to check so many boxes if you're a national security whistleblower that there still really aren't protections. No protections. This is, uh, Ralph Nader actually had his hand in the, uh, way back in the 90s with the uh, uh, Whistleblower Protection Act. And yes. he says it's been watered down. Uh, you see all of these people that violated it. Uh, you've seen friends of yours swept up, a lot of them uh, with the, the Sam Adams group, with the... Uh, veteran intelligent professionals, uh, you know, who come out and they, they've been very gutsy to do this. It's just a handful. It, it's more difficult now to do it. Am I, it's difficult because uh, it's, you're afraid. You see what's happening to Assange. Uh, it's difficult because uh, you basically have been neutralized by fear. Is that what yeah. you think is happening right now? Oh, yeah. Scott Shane at the New York Times said that on the day of my arrest, every single one of the New York Times national security sources went silent and they stayed silent for more than six months. And that's really what the point was. The point wasn't, you know, to, to grab John Kiriakou and send him to, to prison. Um, I was facing 45 years. I ended up with 23 months. So it wasn't that. It wasn't to punish me so much as it was to frighten everybody else into silence. So if you were thinking of blowing the whistle on something, did you really want to end up like John Kiriakou? You lose your job, you lose your clearance, you lose your pension, you lose your family. Nobody wants that. We're going to talk more about the, how it's affected you personally, uh, John, in the second half of this uh, interview. Um, but uh, someone just texted me saying that the, pro that the whistleblowers aren't the problem. Uh, they, they are the, the symptom. They are the alarm for the real problems. You agree with that? Absolutely. Absolutely. I agree with that. Whistleblowing should be encouraged uh, in, in national security, and it's not. It's actively discouraged.
Well, so uh, you, I don't see too many lately uh, coming out and blowing the whistle, uh, particularly on government uh, wrongdoing. I mean, real wrongdoing. Uh, I'm not talking about the deal in uh, in the Ukraine. I'm talking right. about whistleblowing major stuff that's going on maybe in Saudi Arabia, uh, what's going on right now. We don't know what's going on in Afghanistan, what's going on uh, in Iraq. We just don't know. But there's got to be someone out there that I'd like to know. Is the press, mainstream media doing their job? No, I don't think, I don't think the media um, are doing their jobs. Uh, you know, we know, for example, and this is just one example, Ken Delanian from NBC and MSNBC is the chief uh, national security correspondent. In a Freedom of Information Act request filed by BuzzFeed's uh, Jason Leopold, he found that Ken Delanian at NBC was sending his stories to the CIA for clearance and comment before he was even sending them to his own editor. So we know that, that it's not uncommon for these national security correspondents, journalists, to be in bed with the CIA or the Pentagon or NSA. They're not independent. They're not trying to root out corruption or to get a scoop. They're just sort of going along to get along and they're all one big happy family. Yeah, Ken Delanian really is the lowest. I mean, if there's anyone on the planet that uh, is emblematic of that uh, CIA program, which probably still exists, Operation Mockingbird, right. it would be Ken Delanian and then probably Barbara Starr at CNN. They, maybe the CIA's got that entire uh, you know, foreign, foreign entity at CNN uh, under their veil, you know? Sure so, I, I think, and you know, I spoke to, um, uh, Melzer the other day, and he said that it's 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 um, what you and others are doing. Um, it's it's a very selfless act to blow the whistle, and it's a very uh, significant personal risk. And you just like before we go to break, uh, address that for a second. Yeah, the risk is very very high. You have to go into this with your eyes open. This isn't a decision that you can just make on a whim. You have to really understand what's gonna to happen to you. You're going to be arrested. And as soon as you're arrested, you are automatically separated from friends and family. People run screaming from the room. They don't wanna to talk to you. They don't wanna help you. They don't wanna to contribute to your defense fund. They just want to be left alone. You're gonna lose your job. You're gonna lose your pension. Once you're convicted of a felony, and they always charge you with multiple felonies, and then they'll drop all of them but one if you, if you agree to take a plea to one. But once you have a felony, you can never get a security clearance again. You can't get a professional license. You can't ever work in the corporate world again. No, no company is gonna hire a convicted felon, especially with a national security conviction. You lose your pension, you know, and then you finally get home from prison and what do you do? You end up working at Starbucks or something. And that's if you're lucky. Yeah, I, I understand. Look at Thomas Drake. He's working at, uh, at yeah. uh, you know, one of the big firms, but, you know, he's a salesman. He's not what he mm -hmm. wanted to do in life. All right. Uh, we're, we uh, um, have to go. We'll be uh, right back, folks. Uh, thank you, John. I've traveled around this country from shore to shining shore. It really made me wonder the things I heard and saw. I saw the weary farmers 
A plowing sod and loam I heard the auction hammer Just a-knocking down his home But the banks are made of marble With a guard at every door And the bolts are stuffed with silver That the farmer sweated for We are back. Uh, I'm Randy Credico, Randy Credico, Live on the Fly, Assange Countdown to Freedom, all that stuff. on WBAI.org uh, and go to AssangeCountdownToFreedom.com. We've been talking with uh, John Kiryaku, who is a uh, award-winning author, a pen award, not just that, but you got the Sam Adams Award, you got your portrait up somewhere. I mean, you take a look at your resume. The last three weeks I've had Cornell West, and I had Nils Melzer, and you, and you guys have got resumes. If I were to like lay it all out, we'd only uh, have like three seconds for questions. So uh, I congratulate you, John. Uh, you, you've made an incredible comeback. You, you've done radio for uh, a few years. You've written a lot of books, but you went through that hardship being uh, charged under the Espionage Act. Can you just, uh, you know, what, what happened that drove you in a nutshell to blow the whistle when you got back and put yourself in the jam that you're in? Yeah. Uh, Well, I had left the CIA, as I said, uh, about um, five years, four and a half years earlier. And and I got a call from Brian Ross at ABC News who said that he had a source who said that I had tortured Abu Zubaydah. Abu Zubaydah, uh, we believed, was the number three in Al-Qaeda at the time. Uh, I led his capture in Pakistan in March of 2002. I had never laid a hand on Abu Zubaydah or on any other prisoner. And I told Brian Ross, your source is either mistaken or he's lying. Um, and the more I thought about it, Randy, the more I was worried that someone at the White House was going to try to pin the torture program on me because word had begun leaking out. You know, Human Rights Watch had written about it. Uh, Amnesty International had written about it. The Red Cross had written about it. So I decided that I had waited long enough for somebody to say something about this torture program and I was going to go public. I was just going to just tell the truth Whatever he asked me, I was just going to tell the truth. And so in December of 2007, I gave a nationally televised interview to Brian Ross, and it ran on ABC and ran again, um, actually a, lo- a longer version, ran that night on Nightline. And the rest is, is history. The, the very next day, and this is, this is where it starts to get kind of ugly. The very next day, the CIA filed what's called a crimes report against me. Uh, saying that I had uh, leaked classified information. The FBI began investigating me and they investigated me for an entire year from December of 2007 to December of 2008. And then they closed the case and said that I hadn't committed a crime. They sent my attorneys something called a declination letter where they're declining to prosecute. So I thought, you know, all my troubles were over. And a month later, Barack Obama becomes president John Brennan becomes the national, the deputy national security advisor. And Brennan then secretly asked the Justice Department to reopen the case against me. I had no idea that for the next three years, my phones were tapped, my emails were being intercepted. There were uh, surveillance cars following me all over the place. And then in January- Wait a second, this is John Brennan? Yeah, John Brennan. John Brennan, the guy that's on CNN, that is the uh, avatar of of democracy. 
that John yeah. Brennan? Right, John right, Brennan. Go ahead, I'm sorry, man, it's a little sarcastic. Great enemy of uh, democracy. Yes, yeah. go ahead. It's yeah, so, so ironic that this well, guy is being heralded as a hero, but go ahead, I'm sorry. Oh, I'm, I'll give you more irony. It wasn't just John Brennan. Uh, it was Peter Strzok is the one who put the cuffs on me. And- um, I and, didn't know that. And, and Robert Mueller created the John Kiriakou task force at the Justice Department to prosecute me. Wow, wait oh, yeah. a second. Why would they be interested in you? Why would Mueller be interested in you? Uh, you would think the CIA would be. Uh, was John Brennan, it, had, Brennan went to the Miller? Yeah, John Brennan had a Nixonian obsession with national security leaks. And he was determined to make an example of me. Wow. Yeah. I just, I can't believe it when I see him for the last four oh. years. You know, he's on CNN and MSNBC. NBC yeah. calls themselves leaning forward. And it's like, wait, do they, he supported torture. Am I right, sure. Brennan? Sure well, just give us a, a, a brief encapsulation of, of his politics when it came to the CIA. Yeah, John Brennan, John Brennan famously voted for Gus Hall, the Communist uh, Party candidate for president. I in did 1976. too. Um, he, he likes to tell people that because yeah. he's constantly trying to prove that he's neither a Democrat nor a Republican. That's just silly. Uh, he was the only major former CIA official to sign on to the Obama campaign in 2008. Everybody else had gone to Hillary or to McCain. And that's why he ended up doing so well for himself. Well, once he became the deputy national security advisor, his next goal was to become CIA director, which he got in the, in the second term. And as soon as he became the CIA director, he began telling everybody who would listen that he wanted to be the secretary of defense. And so that's why he's been on on TV for the last four years, yelling about Donald Trump. You remember in 2017, when Trump first became president, it was Brennan that was on MSNBC and CNN yelling about Trump and saying that he was a madman. And then Trump suspended his security clearance and it became this big public affair. Uh, that was all done on purpose. John Brennan did that on purpose to keep himself relevant so that once a Democrat re-entered the White House, he might be in line for something big that's passed say, it didn't work but that's what the plan was well he must be happy with gina whatever her name is oh uh, yeah at, at at the cia isn't that his protege gina haspel. Oh, yeah. haspel yes yeah gina haspel was was his protege and she supported torture no not only did she support torture but she actually participated in the torture well, yeah. well, John, let me ask you, when, when you saw this going on, what did it do to your stomach? Knowing my, you're between a rock and a hard spot. You have your colleagues there that you're friendly with that yeah. are engaging in this and that you've got your conscience uh, that you've got to deal with. What, what, it must have been inside yeah. such a dilemma. You know, on the day that the torture program started, it was August the 1st, 2002. Uh, a friend of mine who was deeply involved in it pulled me aside in the hall. I was on my way to the cafeteria to get a cup of coffee. And he pulled me aside and he said, it's begun. And I said, really, already? And he said, yeah, we began on Abu Zubaydah today. And I said, man, this is wrong, wrong, wrong. It's a slippery slope and somebody's gonna get in trouble. They're gonna kill someone and somebody's gonna get in trouble. Well, I was and the what only one good would it do, John, if you got information? I mean, what were they trying to stop? I mean, isn't uh, U.S. foreign policy the result of uh, our foreign policy? Many of us believe 
uh, have encourages terrorism? I mean, sure. are you able to put it out by getting information out of this Absolutely guy? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. You know, the official the official answer to that question is that Osama bin Laden had said that there was another attack that was imminent and it was going to dwarf 9-11. That was nonsense. We disrupted, we disrupted Al-Qaeda from the very beginning as soon as we started bombing Tora Bora. So there was no imminent attack. The real reason that we did it is because we needed to, to sate that, that need for revenge. That's what it was. It was revenge. Right. But also, there's a lot of money involved that, that's thrown out there. Uh, and, and the CIA doesn't forget, uh, uh, you know, the, I think that is probably the driving force behind uh, this zealous movement to quiet Assange and bring him over here is, is maybe what he did when it came to exposing torture and all of that, but all by CIA operatives, but also um, uh, for Vault 7. How much do you right. think that influence and, wow. and angered uh, the CIA brass. You know, it's, did that. It, yeah, it's one thing to talk about a torture program. It's another thing to talk about warrantless wiretapping, but Vault 7's information was absolutely landscape changing, right? Yeah. A lot of people don't know what it is. Can you give us some of the sure. examples? Yeah. Sure. The Vault 7 revelations were the result of, um, of a uh, rep, well, a, a leak, I guess I can use the word leak by a CIA officer, a technical officer. And the information that he leaked called the Vault 7 documents uh, are really the crown jewels of the CIA's electronic capabilities. So what he told us was, for example, that the CIA can hack into your, your TV, your smart TV, and use it uh, to eavesdrop on you. They can take over the, um, the uh, electronics of your car, make you drive into a tree, off a cliff, whatever they want to do. I mean, there was stuff like right out of the movies in the Vault 7 revelations, things that we just had no idea that the CIA was able to do. Wait, this is this is not James Bond-ish uh, kind of fantasy. This is true stuff. I mean, yeah, they can stuff. actually do it. Oh, well, yeah. They're actually doing it. So, so let's say, look, all right, they're mad at him still. They are angry. They want to get even, even if he gets a pardon. All right, and then and and, and the and the Brits go along with it. They have their own dirty laundry and interest in keeping Assange muffled. Uh, really, uh, yeah. the Foreign Office. They got they're involved in the same crimes we're involved in. Sure, uh, they're partners in crime. Uh, so uh, you know, and their intelligence uh, units there. So. What happens to him if he gets a pardon? Is he in the, if he gets out, he's not in the clear. I mean, there's going to be people that have a price tag on his head. I would say, yes, that's true. I would say that even with a pardon, I would be worried. And I think really in the event of a pardon, Julian needs to get to Australia as quickly as he possibly can. He'll be under very heavy police and intelligence surveillance there, but perhaps that's what would keep him safe. But otherwise, yeah, I don't trust the Brits. I don't trust uh, the Americans, frankly, in the event that he's pardoned. So people are going to have to be just about his safety. People are going to have be, be just as uh, rigorous and vigorous in, in supporting Assange until he really gets out of harm's way. And that, even with a pardon, or if he's 
if, if the high court in Britain uh, says, all right, let him go, uh, we're going to have to continue protecting him because right now, let's be honest, he's in this terrible prison. You know how bad prison conditions are. You were there. Is it possible that he would have access to good health care in this yeah. country? Would he have access to communicate to the outside world? What would happen to him in American prison? Well, first of all, health care is, is nearly non-existent. Um, lots of people die in prison. They die in prison every single day. Uh, some prisons have uh, government health care, which is you know bad. It's just members of the national, uh, whatever they call themselves, they wear uniforms, the National Health Service. Uh, and, um, and they, you know, whatever you have, they give you a Tylenol and, and wish you the best of luck. So uh, I, I wrote extensively in my second book about problems with prison healthcare. Uh, others are private healthcare providers like Corizon, for example. Uh, they've got about 27% of the, of the private prison healthcare contracts in America. And the way they make their money is to not give you medication to not send you out for an X-ray or an MRI. The, the fewer procedures that they approve, the less medicine that they give out, the more money that they make. They're a publicly traded company. And there are others too, like Geo, for example. So oh. there is no healthcare, it's, not a, it's non-existent. Well, private um, prisons are a whole different story, man. That you and I can talk about forever in, in, in a future show. Uh, but uh, if he ends up in the supermax, he's got the SAMS uh, restrictions. Well, that, that was going to be my second point. You know, the, there are these communications management units where he'll just be completely cut off from the outside world. No television, no radio, no telephone. You can't write letters. You can't write emails. Literally no contact with the outside world. And that's what they're going to want to do. I, I was in a communications management unit um, and, and I ended up writing a blog uh, that I had to smuggle out. So uh, what they did with my, uh, in my situation is I did have email access, but my emails were delayed five days and everything outgoing and incoming was, was checked. All my letters were slid open and read, then reinserted and sealed. Uh, and, um, and my phone calls were all recorded and monitored. Sometimes, sometimes they were monitored you know, live as I was carrying on these phone calls. So uh, there's, no, there's really no way to get word out when you're in a communications management unit. They're, they're gonna be on them like white on rice. All right, I want to just a couple more questions here, John. I mean, uh, I could talk to you all day long and someone should do a 10 part series with you like they did with this, like Ken Burns, the Civil War series to just go through the entire job <laughs> career. I'm serious. Not sure I mean, my blood pressure there's so much, I have like a million more questions, but you know, um, the um, why are they going after Assange? What are they doing to Assange? And um, what is the message uh, ultimately, uh, yeah. and what are the consequences? Ultimately, if in fact he is extradited, he is convicted and sent to prisons, what kind of implications do we see? Yeah, that's the most important question. Uh, the implication is that every member of the press would be subject to arrest for doing his or her job. That's really the bottom line here. And that's why I'm flabbergasted that the mainstream media haven't rallied around Julian Assange. They have to. To save themselves, they have to. Uh, and I think that secondarily, this, this is meant to frighten everybody into self-censorship, right? 
do you really, as a reporter, do you really want to solicit that classified document on your website? Do you really want to put your PGP key on your website? Do you really want to encourage people to send you internal documents? Because you're going to face arrest now. And if you're overseas, you're going to face extradition to the United States to stand trial on espionage charges. So what this does is it serves to, to chill the entire uh, environment in national security reporting. At the very least, people are going to self-censor. At the very most, the government is, is creating a path by which they can snatch a reporter domestically or overseas and bring them back to face trial. This is an incredibly dangerous development. And it's sickening to me that the, that the, the, the reporters, national security reporters around the country aren't up in arms. Yeah. Well, maybe Ken Delaney will change. I'm joking. Yeah, That's not going to happen. But listen, this has been like the fastest 30 minutes, I'm serious, <laughs> that I've ever gone through. Seriously, it's just like, boom, and there's so much more. Uh, but we're, we're, we'll have you back on. Uh, I look forward like, to it. Right after Assange is either um, convicted by that judge, uh, Betazar, whatever, uh, and sent over here. That's not going to happen, I don't think. But uh, or after Trump gives him a pardon, we don't know. There's a lot of variables. Uh, and uh, nothing's conclusive yet. So, uh, John, thank you for your service. You are thank a hero. You, you are a whistleblower. Nils Melzer considers you a hero and a whistleblower. Well, he's and a hero he, of mine. Yes, he's great. And uh, really, uh, for all your sacrifices uh, that you've made and uh, the consequences that you've had to suffer, uh, keep up the good work. Uh, uh, people Andy. can uh, reach you and get your books at your yep. website. Yep, johnkiriaku.com. You spell that for people? Sure, it's John, J-O-H-N, Kiriaku is K-I-R-I-A-K-O-U.com. I'm glad you pronounced it right, all right? <laughs> Nobody does. Nobody does. <laughs> I know my friend from KPFA had a hard time with it. All right, and I'm sure I don't get it right. Uh, no one ever got my name right when I was growing up, Credico. All right, so uh, thank you very much. We are, thank John, you. John, you're just wonderful. And we'll talk to you uh, again soon. Uh, we're going to take a short break and uh, we'll be joined on the other side by Rebecca Vincent, who I met in uh, Belmorish uh, during the first phase of the Assange extradition hearings. And uh, she's great. And uh, she's from Reporters Without Borders. We'll be right back, folks. Thank you once again, John. Thank you. Good to see you again. Yeah, you too. Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? They say in Harlan County, there are no neutrals there. You'll either be a union man or a thug for J.H. Blair. Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? Tell me, which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? That was uh, Pete Seeger. And uh, I want to thank John Kiriakou. He was great. And joining us now here, Randy Redica, live on the fly here on WBAI 99.5 FM in New York City. Also, this show, as you know, will be on the Assange Countdown to Freedom uh, website. Uh, we continue that series uh, that really started right here back in 2017. And now we got someone I actually met uh, earlier this year, way back in uh, February 24th in London at the Belmorish courtroom. Uh, the first uh, half of this 
proceedings, this Kafka-esque uh, set of hearings uh, on Assange. Uh, and that is Rebecca Vincent, who's the director of international campaigns for Reporters Without Borders, which is known internationally as uh, Reporters Sands Frontiers. And uh, she was great, uh, you know, she loaded with energy, uh, commitment, and uh, you're really uh, such a personality, charisma too, uh, Rebecca. Thank you for joining us here again. Of course, Randy. And I would have to say the same to you with your energy and charisma. You kept us all going in that queue in the mornings in February, very cold mornings outside uh, Belmarsh. Yes. Well, no, you too. You were, I'm telling you, that was, they, we did have a nice crew there. You, uh, Stefania Marizzi, and we had Craig uh, Murray. But of course, we needed that, didn't we? Before we went inside uh, for that dreadful experience. Uh, let's go back. Because uh, I haven't sure. spoken to you in a long time uh, to uh, that period, what you saw then uh, at Belmarsh and then what you saw recently uh, in uh, at the Old Bailey in London, Rebecca. Sure. Well, February, uh, as you know, we were all queuing up very early every morning to try to get access uh, to the hearing. So the only way that we could do that was uh, to get into the public gallery. So that, of course, is meant to be for members of the public. Um, I work for an NGO. I was there as a professional NGO observer. But from day one, this judge has refused to recognize NGOs as having any legitimate role in these proceedings. She won't consider us as any different to the public. So the only way that I can do my job is also by queuing to get into the public gallery. Um, I mentioned that because it, it later became a bigger issue in September, and we'll come to that. But um, we're not accustomed to doing our jobs this way. We monitor trials in countries all around the world. And I have to say in February, so far that had been the most difficult proceedings uh, that I had to access ever. Now that got much worse months later when we returned to the Old Bailey. Um, but in February, I believe we had 20 seats in the public gallery. At the time, the family usually had about six of them. So the, there were usually on any given day about 14 left for the rest of us, right? So I think it was about... Around 5.30 was the cutoff most days. If you didn't get out there by 5.30 a.m., there was no way you were going to get in. It was cold. It was winter weather. This was a 10 a.m. start. Um, sometimes they let us into the building a little earlier. Sometimes they just arbitrarily made us suffer. The last day, I think right after you left, Randy, there was a really cold and rainy day that was particularly miserable. They left us out for quite a long time. And then the thing is, once you were in, you weren't necessarily in all day. You had to jostle and fight to kind of just to get back into the public gallery at every point in the day. If the court rose for five minutes, we got kicked out. So it created this really um, hostile Darwinian attitude amongst people that were there with legitimate reasons to want to monitor this hearing. Um, and of course, then on top of all of these kind of atmospheric things, then we're trying to actually get in and listen to quite complex arguments because in February, that was both sides laying out their legal arguments. So, so that was quite an important week and quite full of substance and ranging from you know extradition law to, you know, to the political nature of the offense to, to many things. And so those were very, very long and tiring days. But I have to say, we thought that was bad. We thought that was uncomfortable. I would take that over, you know, a hundred times uh, versus what we then. Went whoa, doing. whoa, whoa. Are you, I know what you're going to get into. That was pretty bad. What you just described. Yeah. I was there and I was there on the day that it rained and I tried to get a taxi uh, yeah. to uh, the tube to get back to New York that day. That was on the 27th. And I know how nasty it was there mm -hmm. and it was pouring and getting there so early. 
All right. So, and then that, of course, was uh, before you get to um, just a minute, describe what you saw in those three days. I mean, you must have been alarmed by. Oh, by, oh, by, absolutely. I mean, but it was it sort of solidified already our thinking and our position on the case because, and I think it was four days of proceedings in the end. They were, they, there were five scheduled, but they finished in four. So um, I was able to, to get in just <laughs> with sharp elbows, I have to say, and uh, quite a lot of um, determination because I was to get back you in every day, really but um, I was able to systematically monitor the entire proceedings throughout those four days. And what we saw is that the US government really did not seem to have any evidence lined up for these, you know, outrageous accusations that they're making against Mr. Assange. Uh, and then, of course, that we, we learned more about that with the wit witness testimony in September. But I have to say, in February, at least we could see him, we had sight of him, we were we were in a glass box. And so was he, he was held and, you know, we've described this many times, he was held in, in, a, in a glass dock at the back of the courtroom, like a violent criminal like a terrorist we were um up above looking down from another glass box but we could see him we had sight of him we could also see the magistrate um judge judge Beretzer. we could see uh the various lawyers on both sides we could see what was going on we could follow proceedings properly right because we were in the courtroom and that is one reason i would take february over you know right. but, but over the, what we then experienced in september right no, but, i, but I was there sitting next to you too or close by uh, and I could see him and it was alarming, as you mm -hmm. just said, to see him in that box. I mean, was, and he did you know, not look well, did he, Randy? He he was clearly not well. He was clearly not able to engage properly to follow his own proceedings properly. And the judge somewhat arbitrarily denied his uh, his lawyer's application for him to come sit in the well of the court where he could participate properly. So, yeah, that's what was going on that week. But th that was something that as an NGO observer, part of what I'm looking at, I, I don't cover it in the same way that a working journalist would. So part of what I'm looking at is is like his conditions, is, is how how he is, how he's able to follow. And I couldn't see any of those things later in September for the right. reasons that we'll get into. Yeah, well, listen, I, 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 want, I want to jump to uh, uh, September because you went back there in September. I know how bad he looked when we were both there uh, and uh, that entire spectacle that was going on. It was, you know, Nazi war criminals were in open court with their lawyers next to them at Nuremberg. And, you know, it's, you would think he was a Hannibal Lecter or something, the way he was, uh, you know, ensconced in that glass cage. It was really bizarre. Yeah, Eichmann in, in, in Israel had lawyers next to him. So let me go to September, what we just went through. I haven't spoken to you. You were there, you monitored it. Uh, what, mm -hmm. and you had a hard time. Tell us your experience and what you uh, gleaned from the whole thing. Well, it, it might be worth just briefly touching on uh, what happened between February and September as well, because, of course, after that weekend um, at the Woolwich Crown Court, um, we had the pandemic started to take hold in the UK and in many other countries as well. And so uh, when the UK went into lockdown, Belmarsh Prison went into lockdown as well. And so that meant that uh, Assange's monthly call over hearings started to be impacted as well. So he's required to appear before the court once a month and it became in his view, unsafe for him to even be transferred to the prison's video conference room because of the lack of uh, health and safety precautions. And of course, he has a history of respiratory issues and other health issues that put him more at risk um, if he does contract COVID. And so we, we had all of these proceedings. Um, you know, I think there were uh, there were around six in between 
the February week of the legal arguments and then the several the four weeks of proceedings in September, which were the witness testimony in this case. We had all of these administrative callover hearings in between. And we tried to monitor those too. Um, we were given phone access, but it often didn't work. Um, and sometimes the court forgot to add the line to the court. So we were all just on hold. And when I say all of us, it was journalists who were attempting to cover it, right? So few people could do anything in person during lockdown. Um, it was really ridiculous. And so I documented that. We've um, published on that too, um, the sort of the, the difficulty we had with that. And Assange, <coughs> excuse me, Assange did not appear in several of those proceedings either because of the COVID risk. So, <coughs> sorry. Yeah, well, I understand. Yeah, the, the whole, right now, you know, he's exposed like 100 people that got uh, COVID there. Uh, before we get into uh, September, uh, are you concerned about him right now uh, with, with the spread of COVID inside Belmarsh? We are alarmed about him right now because as it stands for over a month now, he has been de facto, you know, confined almost in solitary confinement like conditions to his cell with COVID infections dangerously on the rise all around him, not just at Belmarsh prison, but on his block of Belmarsh prison. So at Reporters Without Borders, we believe that he should be released full stop. We always call for this. We, you know, we think the case against him is politically motivated. The charges should be dropped. He should be released. But this uh, really underscores the humanitarian need for his release as well. And we have pointed this out um, everywhere that we can. We are trying to, to pressure the UK authorities to consider this because globally we have seen cases where journalists have died in other countries uh, due to COVID. And this should not be a risk in the United Kingdom in 2020. This is ridiculous. So, um, yeah, we're not only concerned, but we are alarmed at the conditions he's currently right. being held in. Um, so, yeah, we talked about the week of legal arguments uh, that was heard at the Woolwich Crown Court in February and then the uh, administrative callover hearings in the intervening months. Then September, we landed at the Old Bailey, London's Central Criminal Court. And if we thought things were difficult in February, I mean, <laughs> September, we honestly, we could not you could not make up the level of hoops that they made us jump through. So uh, we, as Reporters Without Borders, along with a group of other NGOs who were interested in the case, tried to get accreditation again to these proceedings. We're again told by the, the court and in fact by the Lord Chancellor, Robert Buckland, that they, they basically refused still to recognize NGOs as having any role different to the public. So we were basically told, you know, try your chances with the public gallery. Now that was hard enough in February, as you know, but now there was COVID in the mix. And so it was used really as uh, an excuse to even more severely limit access to proceedings. Now they opened up an overflow courtroom. So there was two courtrooms where proceedings were happening um, in September. The main courtroom where Mr. Assange was being held, where the lawyers were and where his family was able to access that public gallery. And then the overflow courtroom where a handful of journalists, and I really mean a handful, were allowed to sit on the floor looking at a television screen and you know they were able to work there. Now, what I was able to access, and, and I will explain to you with the difficulty that it even took to get into this bit of the building, but I was only able to access the public gallery in that courtroom. So we were not even in the room where anything was happening. I was staring across the room, probably at least 20 feet at a small television screen you know, to see the same thing that we could see from the public gallery up close in February. Now, there was also another thing that had changed. There was now a cloud video platform, a video system that journalists had been given access to that they could 
from the safety and comfort of their homes, uh, be able to watch proceedings that way and do their jobs. Um, and the court had, um, before the hearing started, given us and a group of other NGOs and a larger group of political observers as well. Because remember, there were politicians that were also interested in the case, MPs, MEPs. Um, but on day one of the, the, the hearing, uh, when it resumed in September, the judge had a look at that and revoked all of our access, anybody who is not an, uh, an accredited journalist. So she, she referenced the fact that somebody had taken a picture from the public gallery in February, but that was not us. That was not anybody there for professional purposes. I don't know who it was, but that's clearly illegal. That's clearly an act of contempt of court. And that is as a professional, not how I would ever do my job anywhere. And I'm, I'm certainly not going to risk a prison sentence to sneak a photo, right? Um, but that meant that we couldn't access this video system. So then we were left to fight again for spaces in the public gallery. But um, any guesses, Randy, how many members of the public were let in this time? <laughs> I think about six, right? Oh, that would have been a dream. Okay, so five max, but in practice that ended up often being two because of this mysterious situation with VIPs. <laughs> which took two weeks to resolve, actually nearly three weeks to resolve. Um, so there were apparently three mysterious VIPs for whom spaces in the public gallery were being held. And, and by public gallery, I mean the one in the overflow courtroom where you're just looking at journalists and a small screen across a, a large room, right? Um, so they would let in two people and then they would wait each session. In the morning, they would hold those seats for an hour and a half and in the afternoon, a half an hour every day. And these VIPs never turned up. Finally, I ascertained um, through, I had been trying for, for the entire time, but finally I was able to work out um, from somebody helpful in the court system that, um, that these seats were being held for diplomatic observers. And uh, we had it raised with the Australian High Commission who then intervened with the court. And I, I believe that these diplomatic observers did not know that these seats were being uh, withheld for them and effectively blocking access to NGOs and, and the public. So they were eventually released. But then at the best of circumstances, five of us were in. Wait um, a second, wait a second. You know, <laughs> we're talking about the biggest trial on the planet of yeah. the journalists, all right? This is a, I mean, beyond significant trial. The whole world is watching this. Uh, and except for the U.S. media, but uh, the world is watching this, and uh, she knows, the judge knows people are watching this. What, what's the motivation, do you think, by making you go through this obstacle course to get in to cover this? I mean, so... At this point, I'm not going to, to hold back on this. I, I had a little Twitter rant last week because um, I the hell I had to go through to monitor 90 seconds of proceedings in one of these callover hearings, right? At this point, I have to say, there is no way that this is purely a matter of incompetence. There is no way that this is a coincidence because we have faced these barriers at three separate courts now, Woolwich Crown Court, the Old Bailey and Westminster Magistrates Court. Uh, the common factor here is the judge who clearly does not want, uh, you know, a significant degree of scrutiny of these proceedings. So I will refrain from commenting further on how, you know, how these proceedings are being handled apart from the access issues. But we have categorized this at Reporters Without Borders as barriers to open justice. And I will have more to say after we learn the, the decision, which is coming up. But what I will say is, is you know, it's, it's been really shocking to, to, to learn that this, is, this could pass for open justice in a modern democracy um, because it certainly hasn't been it. So at every step of the way, the goalposts are constantly shifting. You have to bargain your way in every day. I had a whole network of, of grassroots activists helping to, to queue and to help to get me in because they saw the value in having a professional NGO also able to monitor proceedings. So I'm really grateful for the kindness of these activists 
the public stepped in where the court failed to to ensure that there could be any you know professional NGO scrutiny of these proceedings. So I did not witness every second of it. Um, I had one or two colleagues who helped a couple of times, but we had somebody in the room for at least part of the proceedings on most days over that four weeks. So we monitored as systematically as we could. I couldn't see Assange, like the camera barely went, swiveled to him. And when it did, it was at such a distance that I, I could not comment on his well-being or whether he could follow. You could not see who was speaking half the time. The only reason that I could follow uh, to the extent that I did is because I had everybody's voices memorized from February, all of the various lawyers, right? Like, this is ridiculous. So if you just walked in without this context, like you, you really couldn't follow what was going on. So we did our best, but this is not how I am used to doing my job anywhere. Um, and it is really shocking to me that this You're is talking with Rebecca Vincent. Rebecca Vincent is the Director of International Campaigns for Reporters Without Borders, uh, also known as internationally, and most people know it as uh, Reporters uh, Sans Frontiers, or Reporters Sin Frontiers, whatever. Uh, my Spanish has uh, gotten worse. Uh, I'm Randy Credico. We are talking, Rebecca, about the, whatever went on there. I've had people talking about it. You know, Pilger talked about it. He was there watching it. The whole thing, they're not even like pretend, like pretend. There's no window dressing. There's, there's not, not even a semblance uh, of a fair trial or a fair hearing uh, going on, or at least in my eyes. Do you feel that they're even like trying to make it look like it's a real fair trial? I mean, at, at the moment, I'll, I'll kind of, I'll just focus on the open justice side of it. Um, I possibly uh, more optimistically than I should, I am still hoping that somehow that justice will prevail. So we have, uh, we have two weeks left to see what will happen here. And of course, then there, there will be an appeals process depending on the decision here. But I am still hoping that the system is not as broken as we fear that it might be. Um, and that, you know, despite these frust frustrations that possibly, you know, um, that the, the court will look seriously at this from an objective perspective. Um, and from our view, these, these charges are inherently political, which in and of itself should be a bar from ex for extradition from the UK. But you said that in an article, you said we firmly believe Assange has been targeted for his contribution to journalism. Yes. And the case against him is clearly a political application of the Espionage Act. You still believe that, don't you? Absolutely. And the Espionage Act lacks a public interest defense. So although he's been targeted for serious contributions to extensive public interest reporting, things that the public had the right to know about the behavior of the U.S. government and other states, illegal acts, right? Um, and if he's if he is extradited to the U.S. to face trial there, he cannot defend himself because there is no public interest defense in the Espionage Act. We have called more broadly for that law to be reformed. Um, but as it stands, you know, I, I thought there was some very, um, very powerful testimony from many expert witnesses there that that echoed that as well. I thought, you know, that's it. It's it's not just what's happening here, but what is likely to happen to him if he's extradited to the U.S. We're talking about possibly 175 years in prison in inhumane conditions. I mean, he's very likely to, to face special administrative uh, measures. And, and this is a vulnerable individual with serious mental health issues, with physical health issues that, you know, we have sometimes categorized this as a possible matter of life or death. And it's because of that. Um, so there's many, many things at stake. There's humanitarian concerns, many layers of concerns here. But the, the bottom line is that, you know, these, these charges are ludicrous and, and should be dropped in the first instance. And he sh certainly should not be handed over to the U.S. Uh, if he has no chance of, of a fair proceeding there. 
we say that in this article, you see, we also have serious uh, humanitarian concerns, yeah. uh, which makes Assange uh, extradition a, a, you know, a poss poss possible matter of life and death. You really think it's a matter of life and death? If he were to be yeah, like, I, I, I mean, I, I'm asking you rhetorically. Yeah, no, but I mean, I, I absolutely do because I sat through days of testimony from medical experts that were, apart from one medical expert testifying for the prosecution, we heard days of testimony about how vulnerable Mr. Assange is, how he suffers from, from depression, how he has hundreds of suicidal thoughts per day, how he has PTSD, audio hallucinations, um, a sleeping disorder, all of these issues, and when you look at the conditions and what's reported, um, you know, especially if he faces special administrative procedures, that is like the harshest possible application of solitary confinement. Um, that that testimony was really chilling to me. That stuck out to me more on a personal level than anything else I heard in September. Um, and nobody could nobody could pretend to the extent, you know, that you would fool so many credible medical experts, which is which is what the prosecution at times tried to. Uh, tried to insinuate, but no, it's it's shocking, and and that's why. And frankly, it's not even just a matter of extradition. I'm worried about him in Belmarsh Prison now. Not just the COVID risk, but the mental health issues, especially now that he's basically being locked in his cell because of the COVID risk. Um, last month, there was an inmate um, that that committed suicide. That was a friend of Mr. Assange's. That must be incredibly triggering for somebody suffering from suicidal thoughts themselves. You know, so. I've said this many times as well, if anything happens to him here, it is the full legal and moral responsibility of the UK. Um, and we're not out of the water yet. I think, you know, if they think that they're going to expedite this and hand him over and then it will be the US problem. So th there is the risk of something happening to him here. And that is alarming. He should be immediately released. Well, you, you're your organization, the gray organization around the world, they've been involved in many cases, the implications to you and to your organization, uh, the does it jeopardize uh, the future of the First Amendment, free speech, journalism in general? What, what are the implications if, in fact, they are successful in uh, extraditing him to the U.S. and then putting him in prison? I mean, the, the implications cannot be understated. This, this case is historic. And I felt that sitting in the courtroom. Um, you probably did, too, Randy. It, it just you could feel this weight. Um, this case will have implications for journalism and for press freedom for years to come, not just in the United States, not just in the UK, but internationally. If the US government is able to successfully persecute somebody for publishing public interest information leaked by another source, that is going to have a chilling effect on journalism around the world. This is one reason that I don't understand the hesitant you know, nature of many mainstream media in reporting on this in more strong terms, because it will impact everybody. It will. It could. It could have the potential to completely reshape the future climate of journalism. So it applies to everybody, and and not just journalists, but the public, because that's an that's an angle that really doesn't get enough focus. That ultimately, yes, it's a matter of Mr. Assange's rights, but it's also the public's right to information. And if media are not able to publish information like this, it is the public that ultimately suffers because there will be less reporting on illegal acts by states crimes that should be prosecuted not the person who published it we will be in the dark as a public and less able to hold our own governments to account so this impacts everybody's right people need to and the media need to really circle the wagons rather than the firing squads because this you know ironically affects them 
and their futures, but they don't get it. What about the uh, EU? Uh, how come uh, they haven't come out more strongly uh, condemning uh, the UK and the US for this process? Well, I think there are individual EU states that have been strong. Uh, Germany, for example, has been stronger than most. There is interest there, but I, you know, I think I think it's just a matter of real politic, and nobody is quite willing to cross certain lines in uh, in how they're approaching the US and UK on this case. And I think as well that this year, of course, you cannot um, remove COVID from this. So many countries are preoccupied with with the pandemic um, that they possibly have reduced capacity to engage on other issues compared to other other years, more normal years, right? Um, so I don't know, but this, this is one message that I'm really trying to get across now. We are in a very critical phase now. We have less than two weeks until we learn of Mr. Assange's fate. And if the decision is for extradition, we understand that the appeals process could be seriously expedited. I, I've heard from some with, with knowledge of this side of the case that there could be scenarios that he would actually be extradited next year. So if there's so any silver lining- saying, yeah. I was gonna ask you about this. Yeah. The, the next, it's, it's January 4th. She's mm -hmm. gonna come out to judge uh, with her decision. Uh, where will RSP uh, be uh, at that point? Will you be covering this? Um, I will be trying to get into the courtroom, but from what we understand, um, what I've been told so far is that there's not going to be an overflow courtroom this time. There will only be the main courtroom. And so journalists are already being told that they cannot physically access proceedings, that they can only access the cloud video platform. Now, the court will not give us access to this video platform, which means the only way we can get in is a public gallery. But in September, if we're talking about the main courtroom only, assuming they only let in uh, the same number of people that they did before, that means only the family would be able to access the public gallery in the main courtroom. So no journalists present, no members of the public, no NGO observers. We're very likely uh, to to find out this historic you know, uh, decision just based on the very few people, which again, they're people so immediately connected, only, only the family and only the lawyers, they'll, they'll have to inform the rest of us. And I guess those journalists who are able from home to watch the remote proceedings. But if I can't get in, I will be outside the courtroom. Um, but we are making our position quite clear as we speak to the court again and to the UK authorities. And I will continue to raise the open access issues um, you know, as far as we can, you know, even after these proceedings conclude, because I have been shocked at how the UK has really handled these issues. I, in fact, several weeks ago, I was back in Turkey, even under lockdown conditions to monitor uh, a hearing there. And, you know, this is a country that does not have nearly as strong of a uh, legacy as the UK in, in things like free expression and rule of law, but I have no problems getting into court there to do my job. They understand the role of professional NGO observers. So I've compared that sometimes to, to what we face here. I will be raising these issues far beyond this case for a long time, but um, as it stands, well, they don't want us there. Else. I'm telling you, when you yeah. get better treatment in Turkey than you do in the UK, yep. a lot. Um, so uh, any last words? I know Trump is, has been pressured by people in his own party and from uh, folks like Niels uh, uh, Melzer and Sarah mm -hmm. Palin about giving him a pardon. Are you hopeful? Uh, would you urge him to give him a pardon? I can't say that I'm hopeful because I'm, I'm very cynical about uh, Trump's approach to this case, but I would urge him to, and we have called on him to, as Reporters Without Borders, if he, if he can do anything on the way out the door to improve his terrible press freedom legacy, it would be to, to pardon Julian Assange, to pardon Edward Snowden. Um, and if that doesn't happen, we will then be urging President-elect Biden in office uh, to, to consider his own position there and to, to drop these charges. That's what it should come down to. Um, these charges shouldn't exist in the first place, so a pardon is insufficient in that regard. But the most important thing is to get him out of prison 
immediately. Uh, and then the other issues can be picked up. So any means of getting him out and um, ensuring his health, ensuring that his life is protected, that is the immediate urgent concern. Well, well, uh, you get the last word there. Well, actually, I'd like to uh, let people know how they reach you or reach your organization mm -hmm. uh, to uh, stay attuned uh, as to your work, not just with Assange, but mm -hmm. elsewhere. So our website is www.rsf, so Reporters Sans Frontier, rsf.org. Um, and if you put backslash Ian, you'll get the English version of the site. Um, and you can subscribe to the UK country updates, which will get you everything we're doing on Assange and other issues. Um, I'm also pretty active on Twitter, and I try to live tweet anytime I'm doing stuff on this case, especially at court. That being said, if I get into the public gallery, I lose my device while I'm in there, but, but I do update as soon as I come out. So, what is your Twitter um, handle? Rebecca underscore Vincent. Um, and you can check the RSF Twitter accounts as well because I share things there too. But um, yeah, we will we will be involved in whatever capacity we can on the 4th of January, um, even if it's for the first time not in the courtroom. Uh, but it will be a shame on the UK's record if they carry this out, uh, you know, in, in darkness, which is what might happen. Wow. Well, thank you for, uh, you know, your, your work, for your commitment. And really... Uh, staying on top of this i know since february now even prior to that but you've been on top of this the whole year rebecca vincent from uh, reporters without borders uh, also known of course as uh, reporters sons frontiers and uh, you have been really wonderful uh and thank you for joining us we'll have you back uh, in january we hope with some good news uh, rebecca vincent uh, we're going to go out here I'm Randy Critical, Randy Critical, live on the fly, Assange Countdown to Freedom. Uh, we're going to go out. This is Marlena Dietrich, uh, Where Have All the Children Gone? Written by Pete Seeger. See you next week. Where have all the flowers gone? Long time passing. Where have all the flowers gone? Long time ago. Where have all the flowers gone? Young girls pick them, everyone. When will they ever learn? When will they ever learn? Where have all the young girls gone? Long time passing. Where have all the young girls gone? Long time ago. Where have all the young girls gone? Gone to young men, everyone. When will they ever learn? When will they ever learn? Where have all the young man gone? Long time passing. Where have all the young men gone? Long time ago. Where have all the young men gone? Gone to soldier everyone. When will they ever learn? When will they ever learn? Where have all the soldiers gone? 
when will they ever learn? When will they ever learn? Where have all the graveyards gone? Long time passing. Where have all the graveyards gone? Long time ago. Where have all the graveyards gone? Gone to flower everyone. When will they ever learn? When will they ever learn? Where have all the flowers gone? Long time passing. Where have all the flowers gone? Long time ago. Where have all the flowers gone? Young girls pick them every one. When will they ever learn? When will they ever learn?